welcome to the CLIMB podcast. I'm Lynn Robbins, the director of CLIMB. This podcast is the second in the series of podcasts that CLIMB is producing to address faculty and student concerns about racism, sexism, and other forms of bias that impede teaching and learning and degrade our learning environment. In the first podcast, Amanda Cost, Edwin Lindo, and Roberto Montenegro joined me in the studio to discuss the pedagogical frameworks that teachers can use to create just and equitable learning materials and learning environments. Today they join me to share some real-life examples of how these frameworks can be applied in teaching settings. So we talked last time about how important it is for teachers to demonstrate that they're curious about or question approaches to using the concepts of sex and gender in ways that have been identified as problematic. Can you provide an example? It was as simple as a colleague in one of our courses showed a graph, health disparities among genders. And this graph came from a national organization that does this type of research. And it had a bright pink segment for women. It had a bright blue segment for men. And I think in most cases, folks would describe what was on the graph, and then they'd move on to the next slide. This faculty member said, You know, it would be really good if we can dig deep into this data and disassociate folks who may not fall into these two categories because we may have missed them. That is a criticalness. That is a questioning that led to an answer of, we don't have that data right now, but perhaps we can dig into that. And five years from now, that data can show a middle category that identifies non-binary folks. To me, that, that is an epitome of the practice of being critical while understanding the structural elements that exist in what we're teaching. And I was just reflecting on the fact that the story that you told, like that person, our colleague, certainly not an expert in LGBTQ Mm-mm. issues, right? And didn't get any follow-up questions or things like that. I think students just appreciated the critical approach and saying, here is a spot within medicine that needs more work and here's our hope for the future. I think that sometimes folks believe that you need to become an expert in all of that to speak critically of the field of medicine. And I think that that's not true. I think that Mm -hmm. you can have critiques and start to wonder and be curious about what you're teaching and why you've been teaching it and why is it this way and where did it come from and make that curiosity and almost it's almost like a commitment to lifelong learning and professionalism as well you know, make Mm -hmm. that apparent to the Mm -hmm. students. It's like, I don't know why we do PFTs this way, why you have to give the person's race. And I have a patient who identifies as biracial, and I actually don't know what PFT guidelines to use because there wasn't that option for the category. And so how do we reconcile this? What do we do in real life examples when this comes up? And then what are we going to do in the future? You know, are we going to continue to use this kind of method of looking at PFTs same for the creatinine clearance, right? Lots of things in medicine that are racialized. And I think the students just want us to acknowledge that they're racialized or I don't know if genderized is a word, but something like that. And to let them know that we are also either curious or, or concerned about it or that we, that we think that something needs to move forward, that we're not just satisfied with the status quo. These are the things we need to critique and we need to look into and take it as a discipline and a practice. So that was a a great example of how your colleague was able to question the notion of gender binariness, even as he was teaching about difference. 
But students have also challenged the unreflective use of race as a risk factor for certain diseases and clinical practices in our learning environment. Can you comment on that? In step one, and in our classrooms, they teach our students and say, if there is a Chinese woman over 40 that comes into your clinic, you have to look for closing of glaucoma. A student came to me and said, they keep mentioning race as a risk factor. And I said, yeah, it probably isn't true. He said, how do you know? I said, well, I don't know anything about closing of glaucoma. But what I do know is that the skin color, which isn't attributable to DNA, couldn't possibly be attributable to closing of glaucoma. It could be attributable to that person's historical DNA, their place, their genealogy, food, environment, a number of things. And we, went up, we looked up, up to date, and we looked at the primary source, and what did we find? We found that the ophthalmologist for that research study studied Mongolia and Singapore and extrapolated data from these two small countries with very small samples and said that China has the largest prevalence of closing of glaucoma and never studied China. Interesting. So that student's rejection of the use of race as a risk factor led the two of you to do some research and discover that current ideas about the distribution of close-angled glaucoma among Chinese women are not grounded in high-quality research. Hmm. I'm curious. It's clear that many of the ways we've been taught to talk about race and racism and disease etiologies and disease distributions are being contested. Students are challenging the use of classification systems and cultural categories that have traditionally gone unquestioned or have been considered even immutable. So what teaching strategies have you found helpful to alleviate some of the anxiety that's now associated with teaching about race, gender, racism, sexism, and contested sociocultural categories? Personally, what I like to do to sort of um, assuage a lot of my own personal anxiety, knowing where the climate is both at the school but also nationally, is I start off by simply saying and asking for feedback at the beginning of a lecture and saying today we'll be talking about, for example, hypertension and diabetes. And in this lecture, if there's any content that you feel merits more discussion or if I say anything that you feel is inappropriate or that you're curious about, let me know. I really welcome a discussion. I'm going to try to cover the material as much as possible and stick to the material as much as possible. And at the same time, I want to be respectful of anything that may come up. And I may make mistakes. Let me know. I'm here to learn as well. And then I move on. And that way I establish, I'm trying to establish a culture of accountability and a culture of humility and a culture of camaraderie. And I think just starting a lecture like that might help assuage a lot of anxiety. I think another thing maybe we can talk about is what do you do when you make mistakes? As someone who went and got additional training in um, uh, education on social components of medicine, health disparities, and all the isms you can think of that a PhD in sociology would get you, I'm not an expert in everything, and I will make mistakes. So being in front of a class, talking about uh, issues of race, racism, um, and all the other isms on oppression with my background is still very nerve-wracking. So what do you do when you make a mistake and when you're feeling that you're being challenged in front of an entire group? To me, when I see the, the best educators, 
I see ones that are so fully embraced in their content and they know it so well that a question doesn't harm them, it doesn't puncture them as an educator. They have a question in response saying, that's interesting. Because the way I would see it is that question came from my content and it's a question I've never considered. So now I need to ask a question to understand where that question is coming from because I can learn here. But it's that practice of realizing it's not about us. <laughs> it's not about us. As much as it feels that way, as much as the light is beaming down on you and you feel that all the eyes and you feel this bead of sweat coming down the side of your brow and you say, I need to, I need to respond, I need the right answer. No, it, it could truly be an engage of questioning. And I will say what happens often in that situation is faculty say, well, we need to move on. We need to get through this content. As though somehow that has alleviated the situation, and in all, in all reality, it hasn't. It just prolonged it to the end of class, and they don't have to talk about it anymore. Thinking about what the criticism is directed towards is really important, because if I think you're critiquing me, then I might get very defensive. But if I think that you are critiquing either the content or the system that I'm part in, then we can join together, right, and work together to make it better. And that is a much more enjoyable place to be at than I feel like I've just been taken down, you know, in the lecture hall. An important skill that might be useful to use in situations where you feel that the student is asking a question that might be a little challenging to the content that you're uh, presenting, that might even sometimes be very um, aggressive, uh, which I personally have experienced as a lecturer as well. I think it's important to uh, keep the concept of uh, dialectical thinking in mind at that point, which really just argues rather than trying to say my point is right, your point is wrong it creates a healthier opportunity for conversation at that point. So being able to hold two truths together at one point is a really important skill to have when you're being challenged, especially in material that you're not too comfortable with, and validating and accepting that what they're saying might have some truth to it and that you're not aware and that you're open to learning more. So, I, yeah, I think it, it, is, it is us embracing those moments that, that I would argue are educational and then taking them as learning opportunities and from that point seeing the students as, I said this before, as teachers and learners. I have committed acts of patriarchy in my class that I should not have done. How do we learn from that? How do we make sure it doesn't happen again? Because those blind spots exist. We'll keep saying that. No one's going to hold you to a standard that you weren't even aware of, but we will hold ourselves to a standard once become aware of it. And that will, be, that will be the second point, is when the notice has been made, that wasn't right. And then you do it again, now there's forethought. And students may feel as though it was not just negligence anymore, but that it was intentional. I also think one thing that helps when you make a mistake, and this is probably easier said than done, but is just to kind of be grateful that somebody pointed it out. Um, and, and I think also to be, to practice kind of self-kindness because, um, they're going to make mistakes too. And if we don't teach them how to deal and, and the, like the mistakes that they're going to make are probably one day going to kill somebody. Um, like that's the nature of our job. And so to get to a point where having mistakes or having blind spots pointed out 
is actually, I don't want to say that it's never going to be like painful or difficult or emotionally challenging, um, but actually coming around to saying, you know, like, thank you. This actually is helpful for me. I'm growing. I'm learning. Um, you know, I'm going to be, ho- I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm not going to make the same error in the future. I might. Um, I'm going to try not to, you know, I'm going to try to learn and grow from this experience. Um, I think is modeling like the kind of doctor we want them to be, right? We want them to be able to say, you know, to, to know that they are going to make errors and then to um, graciously respond when they do. And if we can't demonstrate it in the classroom, I think it's going to be really difficult to expect them to learn it in a situation where we're, when we're dealing with families where their family members have died or passed away. Or, you know, I think that kind of modeling actually starts here in kind of the preclinical curriculum, even if they don't really necessarily know it. So I've heard two interesting reframings, though one reframing is that any question is an opportunity to do more research. And then this whole notion of reframing it as the way that you're going to proceed in your professional life as a physician, which is to say, yeah, I really want you to tell me when I've made a mistake, because it's only as a you know, team or as multiple brains working together that we can provide better health care. But I, I recognize the difficulty of being in the situation and, and being able to frame it that way. But I think those are two really good reframes for people to think about. And I think to recognize that when your responses are modeling, regardless of what response they are. And so pick a response that models what you want the students to be like later. Because if you pick a defensive response, that it's not the kind of clerkship student you want to have when things go wrong, because that's a very difficult situation to be in. So I think to, to, to realize that you're modeling beyond just the lecture hall. Um, you're modeling what it means to you know, interact with patients, to think about like, how you respond to criticisms, to critiques, to respond when you make errors. Like How do you kind of walk through the world as a human who's practicing medicine, as a fallible person? you know, in a system that is really, really problematic. I think you've provided some great strategies for reframing potential teaching challenges into learning opportunities. Thanks so much again for joining me in the studio today. This is super fun. Yeah. I feel like NPR. We hope you've enjoyed this Climbcast. Keep listening for additional podcasts in this series on how to create just and equitable learning materials and learning environments. Thank you.